0: Hey everyone, before we start, there are a couple ways you can support the show. We almost ran out of fuel on this season, so we're giving everyone an option to contribute in hopes that it doesn't happen again. If you want some of our music, you can go to iTunes and purchase Between Us, a Psychotherapy Podcast original soundtrack. It's a long title, but we're proud of the music, and if you like the vibe of the show, you'll like the soundtrack as well. You can also go to patreon.com slash between us. There aren't a lot of prizes and rewards there, but you can pick your own amount of monthly support. And the biggest payoff is that not only do we stay in production during the off season, instead of taking these long breaks, you'll also get content as well when we aren't posting to the podcast feed. So we'll keep posting for our Patreon supporters during the off season. Do either of these things to help us do this labor of love. Thanks.
1: I've just always so intuitively been a sort of a middleman kind of person,
0: and so M- I actually middle think woman.
1: Middle woman.
0: It's okay to
1: yeah
0: <laughs> not identify with the man role.
1: I don't want to identify with the man role. I've been a middle woman.
0: <laughs> this is between us. I'm John Totten.
1: Is there something on
0: your mind? Is there something on your mind?
1: It just seems like there might be something you want to say. Yeah. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever oh, sneer at you. Oh,
0: sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say, then. Okay, hey, I don't want to say anything. I've tried. Say okay, so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you? You mean?
1: Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit? Don't you ever raise your voice at me? I am your mother. Do you understand? All I do is worry and slave and defend you, and all I get back is that fucking face on your face. full of disdain and resentment and always so annoyed and I know you're in pain and I wish I could take that away for you I wish I could shield
0: you from the knowledge that you did what you did and what a waste if it could have maybe brought us together or something if you could have just said I'm sorry or faced up to what happened maybe and we could do something with this but you can't take responsibility for anything so now I can't accept And I can't forgive. Because nobody admits anything they've done! Hi Katie, how are you?
1: I am... I think I'm pretty good.
0: You think you're pretty good?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I have a microphone in front of me.
0: (laughs) Unlike our previous seasons, we're producing some of these episodes after the debut of the current season. And so, as I speak this... Our first episode of the season has just posted. You might remember it because I scolded you for not being real people with other therapists. And of course, as soon as I posted it, I started getting email after email full of kind words and encouragement from real people who were therapists. There was one theme, though, and it turns out to be relevant to our discussion today. I got a lot of apologies from women. Maybe they weren't concrete apologies for specific actions. Some of them apologized for not submitting responses. Some of them apologized for the fact that my experience has been what it has been. But they were all kind. They were all thoughtful and unselfish. And they were all from women. If you're listening and you're a woman you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're a man, you may or may not have noticed it. And this isn't to say there aren't men who are deferential like this. There are, and many of them have been my clients. But we all know this shows up particularly with women. We socialize it into little girls. They're taught to be more caretaking compared to boys, and little boys are taught to be more preferential, to go out and get what they want. More often, women are raised to not feel empowered to set their own boundaries. They're taught to say yes. I see it in my female clients and their jobs. They might be asked to work endlessly without extra pay to accommodate a male boss's presentation, or they allow themselves to go uncredited for their hard work. Sometimes I ask, how would that be different if you were a man? Just to get the imagination and the possibilities flowing in their mind. Because I can only know about the female experience what I am told. But I certainly know that I don't have to live this way. My clients respond well when I tell them that I won't meet past 5 p.m. They're respectful when I raise my rates. I apologize only when I actually screw up. It's never expected of me otherwise. And while I think of myself as a pretty accommodating caretaker for a man, my contributions to my personal life pale in comparison To the endless efforts of my wife. So when my guest today tells me that it has been a project for her to find her limits, in all aspects of life, I believe her. This show has sporadically been working its way through my friends who are colleagues. And our latest today is Katie Wilson. I think Katie is really, really nice, and I'm a fan of nice people. I also don't think that for a person to find limits for themselves makes them not nice. As proven by the fact that she's been finding her limits, and she's still nice. She is someone who is a constant learner and ever studious. She's always working on herself and her skills as a therapist. But most importantly to me, she happens to be a real person with me. We caught up and discussed life, marriage, therapy, and finding her limits in a man's world.
1: So this year has been difficult because I have spent almost all my career having at least like one foot in an agency setting. And this year I haven't had that. I've had a number of different clients and client situations that have been, I think, really challenging for Mm -hmm. me. So, and I've felt a lot of pressure in a different way than when I worked in more of an agency setting.
0: And so you're having to provide kind of the whole apparatus for patients who are really hard to figure out. And yes, yeah.
1: and learning my limits.
0: What are the limits that you're discovering?
1: <laughs> well, I feel like I'm starting to discover when I feel like something is too much. Whereas I think when I was in more of an agency setting, and actually I think even when I started, I felt like, oh yeah, I can do this. I can like learn anything. Or I think I felt a lot more, like, open to take on anything. Mm -hmm. And when I first started my practice, I felt open to take on anyone. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm learning that I have limits. A newer clinician, there's a lot that I don't know. I'm, like, feeling a little bit better about saying that.
0: One of the things that I started to realize is, like, a physical toll it would take to sit in front of clients all day. Mm -hmm. Have you had that experience?
1: Yeah. Actually, it's so funny you mentioned that because I feel like in the last probably month or so, I've been noticing that like my back's been hurting, my shoulders hurt, my neck hurts, and I'm like, what's going on? And then I was thinking about it. It's because I sit all day long. And if I only have a 10-minute break in between my sessions... I'm not going anywhere.
0: To try to describe it to people who don't do it, the only thing I can really think of to describe is if your job was to drive long distances. Mm -hmm. There's this feeling of, I just sat around all day, but I feel totally physically drained.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually talking about that in therapy the other day. It's like this interesting job where we sit literally all day, and it's so exhausting.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's really hard.
0: Have you had any regrets?
1: You know, actually just this week, because I am looking at insurance and we have to get it on the marketplace Mm because my husband, Colin, is also self-employed. And so this is the first time I've been like, this sucks trying to get insurance because they're all not good. Yeah. But honestly, other than that, I think it's like the best choice I've made. I love doing it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's one of the main questions that I want to ask you Mm because throughout this season, I'm having a lot of. Second-guessing and thoughts about our community and my colleagues, if I even really like therapists, mm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you're married to a therapist. Yeah. So I guess there's a there's a lot there. Do you hang out with other therapists? Also, there's another therapist who you presumably hang out with all the time. Mm-hmm. And so what is that like?
1: Personally, I love being married to a therapist because I think in a way... It's like there's somebody else that gets what I'm going through, and I can talk about something and have somebody else who understands it. And I think that Colin and I are really good at setting a limit. Like, our relationship is not therapy, and it's not about our clients. I think we both can pretty easily sense when we're talking about clients too much, or Mm. when we're just talking about even stuff in our day too much. So it's helpful because I feel resonated with, but then we stop. We live life together.
0: Mm-hmm. And that my experience of having conflict with therapists, even as friends, has not been terribly easy because I think we tend to be m- more depressive and more mm-hmm. conflict averse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But when anger shows up between therapists, it's easy to like retreat.
1: I am naturally conflict avoidant. I'm working so hard to be more upfront, maybe not like chasing conflict, but not avoiding it. Both of us really like to have fun and we like things to feel good. But what I like about being married to a therapist, I actually feel like we can fight because we feel resilient and we both can trust that we'll work we'll sort of work out our feelings, whether it's together or on our own, and come back and talk about it. But there's like a kindness but also a like a sturdiness. That has been really healing for me, actually. and I think I take it for granted that not everybody, Feels like they can fight with their partner or have like a a difficult conversation kind of regularly. Mm
0: -hmm. What what is it healing?
1: Yeah, I think it's healing the the feeling that, and I don't know if this is a feminine thing or I don't know if it's Katie thing, but that my anger will destroy someone or that my no will will make them feel bad about themselves or that'll hurt them. Again, I'm working on it.
0: Hmm.
1: But in a way, I feel not responsible for him. Like, he can take care of himself. I have felt so responsible for other people, for taking care of them, for making sure they're okay, to being nice, to not hurting other people's feelings. And even in private practice, right, there's a little bit of a a rub or a conflict that comes when you make people pay you.
0: What happens when someone is salty about paying you?
1: (laughs) Sometimes it comes out sideways, like, I can't believe I'm paying for this or that kind of a thing. And my gut reaction (sighs) is to feel like, oh, my gosh, you're right. I think that's where I've done a lot of work of, like, I actually am doing so much here, even if in this moment.
0: It's really counterintuitive that, like, when we hold to that, it benefits. We we see the benefits pretty quickly mm-hmm. when I hold to it with someone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They generally respond well.
1: Yeah. It always works better when I kind of hold onto my boundary. And we could talk about it, but. hmm.
0: Mm hmm.
1: But as far as the friendships, yeah. I mean, I also think that most of my friends are therapists because I like feeling resonated with. But I have been feeling so much, and I don't know if you feel this, but I have so much of myself that is not a therapist that I don't give enough time to. I've been thinking a lot about how can I get out of the therapy world? How can I do things that are not therapy related? Feeling itching to get out and do, I don't know, normal person things. Like what? I don't know how committed I feel to this idea, but I always thought to myself, if I could choose another career, I kind of wanted to get into real estate. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for a real estate course. Wow. Um, just to like learn more about it, see if I like it. I don't think I would ever do it full time, but I need to do something else.
0: So I mean, what is the part of your brain that says, I have enough time to do this? <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know if I have enough time to actually do real estate, but I just started not working Fridays, and I feel like a different person. I feel like I can do things I actually like. I have time to do things, but working four days a week has really changed my life.
0: The ability to set a limit is the ability to give ourselves space. Space to breathe, space to rest, space to have fun, and space to explore elsewhere. I recently met with a potential client who I found really interesting, except his schedule would only allow him to meet with me at night, which I haven't done in almost a year. I was talking with my wife at dinner that night about how I could possibly move some things around and meet with him at night, and she stopped me and said, But why would you do that? You've been working to have a daytime schedule for years. I stopped and breathed and brought myself to the present moment and said, Yeah, it doesn't make sense. There is a cost for having no limits, and sometimes we need to be reminded of it. Back to Katie. Okay, where are you from?
1: I am originally from a small town in Minnesota called Worthington. It's Southwest Mm -hmm. Minnesota. Nobody's ever heard of it unless you've driven on I-90 across Minnesota.
0: Do you find a connection between the role you played in your family and your career? Yes. In what way?
1: I feel like on some level, me choosing to be a therapist was me, I think, trying to fix something. But I have always felt so sensitive to people, to other people's feelings, other people's energies, other people's behaviors. And I've always felt kind of crazy because I never knew how to make sense of it. Like, I felt like I would try to talk to people, you know, probably mostly my family about mm-hmm. who's doing what or why they're doing it. And I never really felt like I understood people, I guess, in that sort of a way. Mm. So I've just always felt so sensitive. To other people. And of course I'm a therapist because on some level I have felt responsible for fixing people, probably fixing my family, smoothing mm-hmm. things out. So I think it's just something I've always intuitively done. And I think through my own process as a therapist and as a person, I think I'm actually learning to do that less, take care of people, make sure everybody else is okay. And that's, that actually makes being a therapist so much better.
0: We have similar families, right? hmm mm-hmm. Oldest child. Mm-hmm. Younger siblings who are twins. Yes. Yep. Three years younger?
1: Yeah, mine are three years younger. Yeah,
0: same. Mm-hmm. I heard recently on another podcast this little tidbit about sometimes they will find that oldest children of twins, siblings who are twins, uh, tend to grow up as translators. Oh for like the twin language. Mm. And it's funny because I'd always thought of my role in my family as a therapist to my parents mm. and their problems. Mm-hmm. But it, that kind of got me thinking about my role as a translator and a therapist for my younger siblings. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know. I've actually never thought of that. I think I maybe felt like a translator, and then I stepped it up to also feeling responsible for them if they were feeling okay or not okay. hmm I do think, too, I don't know about your experience, but I think being an oldest sibling to twins has its own certain feeling about it. It's not just one sibling that came into the world. It was two. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a unique kind of thing that happened to us.
0: When did you know that you wanted to do this work?
1: So when I went to undergrad, I double majored in psychology and business marketing. I think it was my first or second year of college, I took a six-week six week trip to China. And I went to China and I fell in love with it. Something about it, it was so different from a small town in Minnesota. I just was like enraptured by the culture. Mm-hmm. And so I moved back there for a summer after my sophomore year of college. I moved there originally thinking that I wanted to do business there someday, like maybe in Hong Kong or something. I was struggling with a lot of my own feelings my own feelings of feeling worthy, not worthy. I had a lot of relationship issues. And I really connected with those students in a meaningful way. And it opened my eyes to psychology and being a therapist. I think I read Eric Frome. And I read Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl.
0: Those are some heavy <laughs> things to start with. <laughs>
1: I know. I don't know how I like picked <laughs> those up. But I just, I loved reading those books. Felt so much more interesting and meaningful to me than kind of like the business stuff that I'd been thinking that I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was from there that I felt like this is really what I want to do. But when I was in China, I like loved learning about people, studying people, and I was also pretty depressed. You know, I don't know where I thought it would be a good idea to move by myself to Beijing. You know, I think there's the the part of me that felt like it would be more interesting to live so far away. And I think I couldn't think about the parts that were so lonely. I think maybe I was trying to escape loneliness or something. But I feel like I kind of ran face first into all of the issues that I'd always had, but had been able to kind of like push aside. And I don't even think I would have said that I was depressed when I was there. Uh-huh. I just felt kind of like anxious and uptight so I applied to some grad schools and I went interviewed at a grad school in California and they the guy who interviewed me said I think that you actually really need to be in therapy
0: so Katie did go to graduate school just not in California but in Seattle where we became friends after grad school she found herself in an agency working with women with eating disorders what particularly about eating disorders drew you in or was it just getting a job and finding out later whether it fit you? Or?
1: Mm-hmm. I do think, honestly, it was because I got a job. But I've always been so interested, especially when I was in grad school, in the connection between the body. I think because, I don't know, for whatever reason, I've always been really in tune with my body. I could always say, like, my chest is tight or my stomach is tight before I could say, oh, I actually have a feeling. Yeah, and so, so- the somatic
0: type of work comes naturally for you. Mm-hmm. What would, How would you explain its usefulness to someone who is skeptical?
1: Mm-hmm. So this is what I would say today. Our bodies hold emotions before we're able to think about them.
0: The, the feeling happens in our body before we become aware of it.
1: If it's located in your body, you can't talk about it yet. You can't process it. And you for sure can't think about it. You can't mm-hmm. say, like, I'm feeling whatever it is.
0: Have you experienced, either as a woman, a therapist, but in your clients as well, mm-hmm. like there being trauma in the air in the last year as this movement has become more public?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. Obvious question. <laughs> yes, obvious question. But also, I mean, I, th- I think what the Me Too movement has done is putting words and language to something that women have always felt So I think it's bringing more into cultural consciousness, Mm -hmm. cultural conversation, what Mm -hmm. women have always been battling. So in that way, being able to feel like you can say something about it. You can say no. You can put words to it.
0: And so the women who have come out with their stories have given permission to others.
1: I think so. Permission to say, you know what, that dynamic or that thing didn't feel good to me and I didn't feel permission, then to say it didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to say it's a feminine struggle, but it does feel like there's been more permission to put language to these experiences that I think before women would have pushed aside or pushed under or wouldn't have felt like were a big deal in a way, but actually I think Probably really are, really have been a big deal.
0: I guess my question would be like, what has your experience as a woman in this field been like in regards to gender and the othering and. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a very female dominated field, but it's interesting in sort of the, like the particular communities that I'm in, the particular ways that I. You know, think I've read a lot of sort of psychoanalytic literature, or you know, it's kind of the world that I'm in, and it's so male dominated, and it's so interesting to me. I feel so sensitive to it. I feel like so much of the conversation about the human brain and the human psyche is talked about by men, and mostly white men, and I I think that. In my experience, and I don't know what to do about it, but I think about it a lot, there's so much complexity that's missed that has to do with the female experience. So when there's so many, you know, I know there's a lot of areas of psychology that are really dominated by women, but I feel like I see a lot that are dominated by men. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me because it just feels like there's a sort of way of talking about either case studies or psychological ideas that are said in such a, an authoritative way. And I feel like there's so much of the feminine experience that goes missing for some reason that's not even in their consciousness that it might be different if you were a woman or whatever. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: But sure, I think it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but why is it not obvious to everyone?
1: I don't know. So much of the world is like a white man's world. It's not a lot of room for the complexity of what it's like if you're not a white man. It's something I find myself thinking about a lot, like how there's some areas where I feel so missed.
0: What is it like for you going back to the midwest and having political conversations with people
1: yeah you know I actually feel like when I go back to the midwest I don't have political conversations and it's hard
0: so I noticed that like you do a lot of work around protecting others from your anger <laughs> uh-huh. does anger happen for you with your clients
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. say like
0: you're thinking of something specific
1: I have a really interesting relationship with anger because I do feel like I want to protect some people from my anger. And I feel like I'm so in tune with my anger. I am not good at at always expressing it or bringing it to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that I'm working on. I do feel like with clients, I get really angry at some clients really quickly. Um, I think it's really important. I think it is so useful In, like, a clinical session to notice my anger because actually, so many of my clients have a really hard time with anger. And so, whether or not they're like unconsciously projecting it into me or acting something out with me, Mm -hmm. it is so hard for them to be angry. So, it's really helpful to have my anger to talk about.
0: Can you be specific?
1: There is one person that I meet with that often I will notice myself feeling furious that I want to punch them or like like
0: claw them.
1: <laughs> I usually don't get that angry in my normal life. And so like I'll take a few minutes and breathe through it and just say like oh my god I'm so fucking angry. Mm-hmm. And then if I can step back from it and think about it through like the clinical lens like this person has a lot of reason to be angry just based on like family dynamics and situation like so angry. And they have not been allowed to be angry. They would feel abandoned if they were angry in their mm-hmm. family. So every time I'll say something about "I wonder if you're angry," they'll say, "I'm really angry." I don't know if they would have been able to say that without me feeling so angry at them.: Yeah, it's really easy to feel, for me to feel angry on someone else's behalf or, mm. you know, feel angry for them. It's so much harder to like feel angry at them..
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And digest it in a way that's like actually clinically useful
0: well so it's metabolized differently for people coming from a woman as it is coming from a man
1: well i do think it's actually probably so much easier for me to feel angry mm-hmm. either at clients or on their behalf i'm fairly apologetic i'm fairly absorptive of people's emotional experience. So when I feel angry or I want to process anger, I think it's usually pretty
0: metabolized. In my opinion, this is what using countertransference should look like for a therapist. Instead of freezing in her anger towards her client or stewing or blowing up the relationship in some kind of enactment, Katie asked herself what her anger was all about. And she came up with the hunch that maybe she was feeling anger for her patient in place of the anger her patient couldn't feel this led her to create space for the patient to express that anger this would never have happened if katie would have allowed herself to rage inwardly or outwardly without any kind of investigation that might sound like an obvious statement but it's easy for us to stop doing this investigation in life and in practice. What are you excited about right now?
1: I feel really excited about thinking about issues of race and gender in psychoanalysis. There's a lot of good conversations happening, but I think we need to have a lot more Mm -hmm. conversations. So I get really excited thinking about reading female authors, authors of different backgrounds. Yeah,
0: The race thing is... To talk about it means accepting a lot of responsibility for mm-hmm.
1: it. Yeah, and a lot of not knowing.
0: Like not knowing?
1: Not knowing what somebody else's experience is, not knowing how we've impacted them, how our field has impacted them, mm-hmm. maybe facing the shame of like, yeah, we, we messed up or we mm-hmm. missed a lot here. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think our field doesn't like looking at external, political, social
1: Forces Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. our
0: clients, which is too bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is too bad because psychoanalysis focuses more on the internal experience, but those factors shape our internal experience so much. And I think to not be aware of them is doing everybody a disservice.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I just got married in August mm-hmm. and getting married has been a surprising psychic upheaval. Not the marriage itself, mm-hmm. like that I feel fine about, but it's actually just like brought up a lot of feelings both about, you know, gender, mm-hmm. but also just my own experience, like what what I've always imagined marriage to be, what I always imagined the role of a wife to be I've been feeling strangely emotional, like, why is this thing that I... I, like, feel great about the marriage, the person, the relationship, but it's just the, the something about the act brought up a lot for me.
0: Because of everything that gets projected onto it. and
1: Yeah, I think so. And, like, what happens if I am too difficult? Just old feelings like that. And I think there is constructs that were implicit in what it meant to be a family that didn't feel good to me. And so, wrestling with all the feelings, now I'm like, oh, I get to choose family. You know, like, this is, we're creating this thing. Whatever family looks like for us, we get to create it and we get to like recreate it all the time.
0: There are a lot of like expectations for what a wife does and what Mm -hmm. a marriage is.
1: Yeah. Even though I don't know if I got this from my family in particular, but this sort of idea of like women being like sort of supporters of the family. You know, making the food, being responsible for the household stuff, always being kind of unconditionally supportive. And a lot of that just didn't fit for me. Hmm. And I don't think I even realized I was trying to make it fit, but it was so surprising to me. I didn't know that that was there.
0: There's all these things that we grow up with that say that, like, you do this thing and have this day and then you're different. Mm -hmm. And you're not. Mm -mm. And there's still a lot of expectation around it doing so.
1: Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's one of those things that a lot of people put so much projection onto, you know, like we were talking about earlier.
0: And I'm guessing that that would also play into your journey into, like, finding limits for yourself. And like it's important not to constantly serve.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there's some part of me that always feels or has felt like I needed to be helpful or useful. And what does it mean if I'm not? I feel like I've had to do a lot of work on that.
0: Hmm.
1: Like being valuable just because I was born.
0: And you're enjoying that process? (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I'm learning a lot how to let myself just be where I am. I can't always know everything perfectly like Mm -hmm. I feel like I should. Thanks, Katie. Yeah, thanks, John.
0: Our thanks to Katie Wilson for joining us and to you for listening. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composes our music. We had help with editing from Chris Keene at Cutter's Cathedral in Chico, California. Support us at patreon.com slash betweenus, where we will be posting episodes during the off-season. You can also buy our soundtrack on iTunes. It's called Between Us, a Psychotherapy Podcast, original soundtrack. Find us on social media. We have a Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram account. And remember to leave reviews on iTunes. And until the next time, take care.